Seltzer Kings podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I wouldn't be too full of myself there, Gavin. You guys started a war over opium. Ass. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When your response to America's thirst for booze was, fuck you, no booze for anyone? What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 327, Operation Carry Nation edition of the show, where we talk about the temperance movement in America. It's part one of Just Say No, America, so stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Ray's Rehab. When they say you gotta go, but you say no, 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 try Ray's Rehab, the program where you just kinda quit drinking. At Ray's, we know that problem drinking is a huge issue in America, and sometimes quitting is the right thing to do, but we also know that a lot of times, you don't want to quit. That's why Ray's focuses on teaching you how to hide your drinking from everyone, and in doing so, reduces the amount you actually drink. It's a win for everyone. Ray's focuses on how, when, and where you drink, reducing the frequency and the amount you drink by needlessly complicating how you drink. No more benders, no more DUIs, just furtively sipping drinks for pri- far from prying eyes deep in the woods, desolate warehouses, or abandoned homes. No one but you in the liquor store will ever know. Ray's Rehab. We both know you're not going to quit, but why should everyone else? I can save you. You you look like you were once a fine man. It's been a long time. Before the evils of alcohol took a hold of your person. I know inside there is a good, honest human being. Come with me. Come with me. Take the pledge. I can help you. Oh, it's so sad. Where is it's not your fault? You're just an employee of the dastardly villain. Are you the dastardly villain? When I was a kid, there was always a moment that shocked me to the core of my young soul whenever I visited a friend's house. The presence of alcohol. Or more to the point, watching their parents consume alcohol. Why are you so evil? In my preteens, watching an adult openly consume alcohol was almost as bad as watching them openly fornicate. Not that I could comprehend that either. I used to ask my friends if their parents were alcoholics, which they may well have been, but just because they were idly drinking a beer while watching a football game, that wasn't a reason to think they were an alcoholic. But you see, in my home, alcohol was the ultimate taboo. We didn't drink, and by we, I mean any member of the Bledsoe household. Drinking any kind of alcohol was absolutely strictly prohibited here, okay? There weren't any talks about why drinking was bad and what that and what would happen if you did drink. It was unmentionable because it was unthinkable. 
it was as if even bringing up the subject made you almost as bad as someone who actually drank alcohol. And if it ever happened to come up, it was in a vituperative castigation of those who consumed and a dire warning of what would happen to us kids if we ever touched it. Needless to say, that just made it so much more appealing so that by the time I was old enough to figure out how to get away with drinking and not get caught, I started drinking. And I fucking loved every second of it. By the time I graduated high school, me and booze, we were real good friends. And when I joined the military, we were besties. Oh, booze. What would my life be without you? Longer. There's a pretty good argument to be made that your humble pod host does not have the healthiest relationship with alcohol. What? That is crazy talk. There's also a pretty good argument to be made that if booze had been addressed in a calm, common sense, rational manner in my youth, that I might not use alcohol to replace all the love I felt I never got from my parents. Just saying is all. Hey, somebody needs a hug. I guess you could say America and me got a lot in common because both of us share an unhealthy relationship with drinking. We drink a lot. And that's a change since the end of the last centuries when drinking rates, not counting yours truly, were generally on the decline. But since the early 2000s, booze is all like, Hey, how y'all doing? Booze is all like, did you miss me, America? And America is like, Where have you been all my life? In a June 2021 article in The Atlantic discussing this issue, it says, quote, What's distinctly American about the story is not alcohol's prominent place in our history, that's true of many societies, but the zeal with which we swing between extremes. Americans tend to drink in more dysfunctional ways than people in other societies, only to become judgmental about nearly any drinking at all. Again and again, the era of overindulgence begets an era of renunciation. Binge abstain, binge abstain. Right now, we're lurching into another periodic crisis over drinking, and both tendencies are on display at once. Since the turn of the millennium, alcohol consumption has risen, risen steadily, in a reversal of a long decline through the 80s and 90s. Before the pandemic, some aspects of this shift seemed more fun, as long as you didn't think about them too hard. In the 20th century, you might have been able to buy wine at the supermarket, but you couldn't drink it in the supermarket. Now, some grocery stores have wine bars, beer on, and signs inviting you to shop and sip and carts with cup holders, unquote. I mean, it's not a new problem. This is a country that was founded because we're out of beer. The whole reason Plymouth Colony was in Massachusetts instead of Virginia as planned was because the Mayflower was running out of beer and the sailors dumped the colonists on the shore so they would have beer for the return voyage. That really explains a lot about Boston. Why Boston is so full of angry drunks. They got dry dumped on a beach in a shitty climate and half of them died because they were drinking up all the booze on the boat. If you've ever taken a booze cruise around Boston Harbor, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh my God, Jay. Pull right up next to that shit, Jay. Oh man, look at this fucking thing. You've probably heard how the colonies were basically on a bender from the start. Stories about how much Americans drank are told on podcasts like this one's and in history shows about prohibition, and it makes it sound like America was just constantly shit-faced. That's what I heard. And there's some truth to that, but what it doesn't tell you is that most of the colonists were drinking a very low alcohol content alcohol, and it was often watered down because you can't be fucked up and plow a field at the same time. Can you imagine how the plow furrows would look? Like cursive. The most common drink of the colonies was hard apple cider. Do you want a dick and cider? What? I said, how about a dick and cider? Uh, uh, Jack, it's no big deal. Yeah, like you've never had a dick and cider before. Hey, Jack. Hey, <laughs> apparently Jack here has never had a dick and cider. 
You remember your first, don't you, sweetie? Uh, yeah, it's good. So good. Let's give him one. Okay, but can we make it quick? Absolutely. Lucky boy, Jeff. You're gonna get your first one tonight. Can't blame a guy for getting excited about a dick and cider. That's about five to seven percent alcohol, and it was imbibed the way Americans today grab a can of Coke from the fridge. It was the drink of choice because it was easy to make from apples that were not edible because they tasted like shit. It stored long term without spoiling and didn't cause you to die by shitting your bowels out. It wasn't consumed so much to get drunk. It was consumed because it tasted good and it was safe to drink. If Americans wanted to get drunk, they drank rum. Rum was cheap, ready, and readily available because we made it. From molasses shipped up from the West Indies, we turned it into rum, and what we didn't drink, which was most of it, we shipped it, the rest of it back to England. Rum was the drink of the middle and upper class, not the common man, and boy, did the rich people drink the shit out of it. I mean, did you really think the American Revolution was about fucking tea? No, it was about rum because rum also fueled the American economy. I got this from a white paper called Alcohol and Tobacco Use in Colonial America. Quote, rum was an inseparable part of the economic foundation of the New England colonies, and the southern colonies depended on the health of the New England rum trade for their supply of slaves. If they had been enforced strictly, the English acts that threatened this economy, the Molasses Act of 1733 and the New Molasses Act of 1763 and the Sugar Act of 1764, they would have threatened the very survival of the colonies, unquote. Now, of course, after the war, Britain cut off America from the molasses trade, so we had to start making our own liquor. Distilling whiskey provided a great income for a lot of Americans because they could use their surplus grain to make booze and sell said booze for a healthy profit. The Whiskey Rebellion was all about people paying taxes on the booze they made. But once we had that ironed out, it was smooth sailing for booze production in America. Everybody got paid. I mean, the rich people got paid a lot more, but still, and everyone drank a lot. By 1830, the average American was ha taking seven and a half gallons of booze a year. Is that, is that a lot? I don't know. Only by certain standards. I think I would call that a month's supply, but we all know I have a problem. By comparison, the average consumption today by, Amer by Americans is 2.5 gallons of alcohol, which I would call a Thursday. It was around this time that some people began to grow concerned about how much America was drinking. And I guess I should say before I dig in on the temperance movement that they were not entirely wrong in their views. America was drinking too much. Alcoholism was a problem for a lot of people and women and children were the ones to suffer the most from the disease. The earliest temperance movements focused primarily on moderation and early intervention to keep alcohol from becoming a problem for individuals. Temperance was also linked directly to the abolition of slavery, and the proponents of temperance looked on both of these things as wounds to be healed on the soul of the nation. It was inextricably tied to religion, specifically Protestantism, and it was mostly a social movement rather than a political one. But that was until... Those people started arriving. Because in the years immediately preceding and immediately following the Civil War, large waves of immigrants began arriving from Europe, and those immigrants came from famine-stricken Ireland, and in the eyes of many Americans, the Irish... Many Irish are drunks. 
They were not drunks. I mean, yeah, they were. But not because they drank more than the average American. It's because they had the temerity not to feel a sense of religious guilt about their drinking. And because the Irish, you know, were so openly Catholic. Yeah. The Irish and most of the rest of the European immigrants didn't share America's bipolar love-hate of alcohol. And they didn't want the temperance movement telling them that they shouldn't drink or they couldn't drink or what they can drink or where they could be drinking it at. And then there was the other issue for the temperance movement. And that's broke-ass black folks. I mean, they wouldn't have been broke-ass if the nation had done right by them and compensated them for generations of slavery, but we all know how that turned out. White people were extremely scared that black folks would get drunk and do stuff to them. Hey, where are the white women at? Especially their women. Free black folks are the unspoken impetus behind temperance, and no one wants to talk about it. But you know what? I will. Because it doesn't take a lot to bridge the logical gap between quiet moral movement of the pre-war temperance advocates to the loud, aggressive post-war temperance movement consisting largely of white women. Karen, come on! Together with their allies in the religious community, they went radical in their efforts to keep alcohol in the hands of Americans and people that they didn't consider American. And once black people were free to drink and all those immigrants just coming over willy-nilly, the old ways just weren't getting it done. Gone was the idea of influencing people to moderate their behavior. In its place, the idea that liquor, wine, and beer... It all has to go. No more drinking for anyone. And they would do whatever it took to accomplish that goal. None more so than Mrs. Carrie Nation. Really, Gavin? Carrie, by Europe. Ah, get yourself a cookie. You earned it, you bastard. If there's a figure that best represents the face of the temperance movement, it would be Carrie Nation, who in all honesty looks as though she could use a stiff drink. Imagine the face of a woman who has never experienced a happy moment in her life, and you have the face of Carrie Nation. I'm not saying this to be a misogynist asshole. I'm saying this because until she found her purpose, she had probably never actually experienced a happy moment in her entire life. Carrie Nation born Caroline Moore in 1846 to a fairly successful small farmer in Kentucky who would go on to lose pretty much all their wealth when the Emancipation Proclamation gently demonstrated that human fucking beings are not property. She was a sickly child and her mother was off her fucking nut. I mean, she thought that she was Queen Victoria. We are not amused. Or at least that was the rumor. Her mother was confined in an asylum until she died. As for Carrie, she married a former Union Army doctor in her youth who had developed a pretty severe drinking problem, which, uh, yeah, he spent four years sawing off the arms of screaming soldiers and watching them die of sepsis, so uh, you would drink too. He went on to die of alcoholism, and Carrie would later marry David A. Nation, an attorney, pastor, and newspaper journalist in 1874. She became involved in the temperance movements after the death of her first husband, and her second husband was also a movement supporter. But it was in 1900 that Carrie experienced her epiphany. Quoted from Wikipedia, quote, Dissatisfied with the results of her efforts, Nation began to pray to God for direction. On June 5th, 1990, she felt she received her answer in the form of of a heavenly vision. Remember her mom? Anyway, 
As Nation described it, the next morning I was awakened by a voice which seemed to be speaking in my heart these words, go to Kiowa. My hands were lifted and thrown down and the words, I'll stand by you. The words, go to Kiowa, were spoken in a murmuring musical tone, low and soft, but I'll stand by you, was clear, positive, emphatic. I was impressed with the great inspiration and the interpretation was very plain. It was this. Take something in your hands and throw at the places in Kiowa. Smash them. Responding to the revelation, Nation gathered several rocks. Smashers, she called them, and proceeded to Dobson's saloon on June 7th. Announcing, men, I have come to save you from a drunkard's fate. She began to destroy the saloon's stock with her cache of rocks. After she similarly, similarly destroyed two other saloons in Kiowa, a tornado hit eastern Kansas, which nation took as divine approval of her actions, unquote. And so was born the hatchet crusader against demon alcohol. Carrie Nation would go on to storm around Kansas, smashing up taverns and saloons, getting arrested, and generally making a huge pain in the ass of herself. Carrie, often with several other women in tow, would arrive at a saloon and burst through the doors, usually singing a hymn and wielding a hatchet. She would announce to the men gathered inside that she was here to save them. In her autobiography, The Use and Need of a Life by Carrie A. Nation, quote, I ran behind the bar, smashed the mirror and all the bottles under it, I picked up the cash register, I threw it down, then broke the faucets of the refrigerator, opened the door and cut the rubber tubes that con conducted the beer, she recalled. I threw over the slot machine. I got it from a sharp piece of iron, which I opened up the bungs of the beer kegs and opened the faucets of the barrels, and then the beers flew in every direction and I was completely saturated, unquote. She would inevitably be arrested, but before long, her group of supporters would bail her out, pay her fines, and she would be off to another town to trash another devil's pulpit. From History.com, quote, Carrie Nation ignored her detractors, kept pursuing the temperance cause, and as the years passed, she became more and more famous. Bars began to hang signs that read, All Nations Welcome Except Carrie. Late in her life, Nation took her message to vaudeville theaters. In at least one case, she stormed the stage to smash a glass supposedly containing liquor that was held in an actress's hand. Though she advocated for the rights of the poor and the homeless, she focused on other acts of charity during her life. Carrie Nation is best remembered for her dramatic demonstrations against demon drink. I want to do what God tells me to, she remembered telling a judge after a hatchetation arrest. God commands me to lift up thy voice like a trumpet. You see, here I am commanded to cry out loud about sin and not to whisper about it, unquote. Needless to say, saloon owners did not care for Carrie Nation's hatchetations. In one instance I could find that took place in Elizabethtown, Hardin County, Kentucky in 1903 when, when Nation arrived in town to stump for a local ordinance banning alcohol. She took a room uh, directly across the street from the local saloon and was seen stomping about town carrying a Bible and her hatchet. After giving her lecture, she approached the saloon and its owner, Bob Neighbors, who was sitting in front of a saloon on a wooden chair. When Nation stopped to shout at him that he was running a dirty business, Neighbors stood up, picked up his chair, and walloped Nation upside the head with it twice. Carrie wasn't badly injured and refused to press charges, claiming it was just proof that booze was of the devil. But I will note that she did not bash up Neighbors' saloon with her hatchet. Hardin County, however, did pass its prohibition statute. Carrie spent the remainder of her life crusading for prohibition. She was even tossed out of the White House when she showed up in Washington to upbraid Theodore Roosevelt for serving wine at White House dinners. She died in 1911, 
After collapsing on stage, delivering a blistering speech on the evils of drinking, her final words were, I've done what I could. She wasn't wrong. The 18th Amendment would pass nine years after her death. Carrie Nation was only a small part of the Tempers movement, a noisy and destructive part, mind you, but a small one. The larger and more effective elements were working around the nation to dry out states, states and counties one at a time with the unflinching goal of a national prohibition. The women's Christian temperance unions, once it focused entirely on the passive prohibition, is perhaps one of the largest and most effective grassroots movements in history. In 1893, the WCTU began a concentrated campaign for a national prohibition, and together with the Anti-Saloon League, they pushed through the 18th Amendment in 1919. That is impressive by any standards. And one cannot separate the success of the movement from the awakening of civil rights for women in America. The suffrage movement was simultaneous with the temperance movement, and most of the big players were active in both movements. The 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote, came right on the heels of the 18th banning booze, and it was carried by the same people. Temperance was linked to civil rights, but not civil rights for everyone, mind you. For example, the 19th, 19th Amendment didn't so much apply to black women or Native American women, but hey, you know. Uh, what do you do? What can you do? And yes, they did have some valid points. America was drinking itself to death. The price of alcoholism was predominantly borne by women and children, and there didn't exist a social safety net to help them. I mean, we barely have a social safety net now, but back then, they would have killed for it, and it would have saved a lot of lives. So yeah. Sure, there was a real problem, but the problem was never going to be solved by banning booze. Anyone could see that. Well, anyone but the temperance folks in the U.S. government because we tried what people at the time called the Great Experiment, and the results were, uh... It's bad. It's really, really bad. And that is where we will pick up next week when America goes on the wagon in part two of Just Say No, America. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. I might be on this topic because I took my fat ass to the doctor recently and he was concerned by how much I drank. Shocked. Shocked. We, we're, we're shocked. Something about my liver and dying, but I was honestly a little hungover, so I missed most of what he was saying. You know, speaking of missing what people are saying, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcast. It helps others find the show, take a listen to us, and immediately never listen to a thing you say ever again. All of my missed conversations are on the social, the Hell underscore Scott podcast on Twitter, and the show name on Facebook. And all of my unlistened rants are at whatthehellpodcast.com. You can kick us a dollar on Patreon, patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast, so you can keep not listening to me rant ad-free and early. And we are a proud member of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. We want you to know that Jeremy says all this stuff right at the end of the show, so I don't technically need to say it here, but come on, we all know you don't listen that far. So for me, Dave, demon rum is throughout the land, Bledsoe, producer, the wise, the simple, the brave, and the fair, Gavin, and all the fictional teetotalers on the show, we want to say with this our motto and sucker divine, the lips that touch liquor shall never touch mine. And we'll see you all for part two next week.
What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.